The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. We are in the midst of planting a new work in Queen Creek. For those of you that may not know, Queen Creek is about uh, 30 minutes southeast of Phoenix. So it's an up-and-coming suburb, and we were pastoring in Chandler at a PCA church in Chandler, Arizona, and we got sent out at the end of January to plant. And we actually just moved into our house yesterday, so um, we're living out of boxes, and I'm actually borrowing Pete's Bible, because I don't know where my bio, what box my Bible is in. Um, so this isn't my preaching Bible, this is Pete's. So Pete, when you hear this recording, thank you. Uh, Pete and I, over the past few months, have grown very close. He is coaching me as a church planting coach, so I've gotten to know him uh, over the past several months, and really, uh, it's a blessing to be here and to really see kind of the fruit of his church planting efforts, what the, God, what the Lord has done through him, and I'm just grateful to be here. So with that, if you would turn to me, please, in your Bibles, or it's on the screen behind me, I'm sure, Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Oh, Pete, you don't have any notes in here on that. Good. Okay. Uh, Let me read. And the people of the Lord did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And they sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. We thank you for our Sunday rest that we have each and every week from our labors, where we can come and worship you. Lord, I thank you ultimately for the rest that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we study this text this morning, that you would point us to the Lord, that you would point us to who Christ is and how we can apply this passage to our lives. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're in the Old Testament, the book of Judges, and Judges takes place after the book of Joshua. So if you think with me over the the course of Israel's history, Israel was captive in Egypt for over 400 years. God brought Moses as his prophet, mouthpiece, to deliver Israel from Egypt. They were in the wilderness for 40 years, and then God raised up Joshua, and Joshua was commanded to to conquest, to take this promised land, the land of Canaan, and to drive out its inhabitants, the, the Canaanites. And then Judges picks up where Joshua has passed away, and new leaders are coming aboard. In Judges 1 and 2, there are two introductions, two prologues, and it's a little bit like um, the way it's structured, how many of you guys like to play games, new games, card games? Anyone here? Yeah? Some, some, thank you. Some head nodding. Okay. 
Now, there's some people that, that like to read all the instructions and, and, and go through the rules and maybe watch a bunch of YouTube videos on it so, so they grasp the game. Others like to kind of get the 30,000-foot the view and maybe play with somebody who's played the game before, and as you're playing along, that person is instructing you. So you're not in bogged down in the, in the, in the details. You're, you're talking to this person and saying, hey, how does this game work? The second example is, is like the book of Judges in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 is kind of the instructions from Israel's perspective. Chapter 1 and 2. They're given, they're given instructions of what is ju Judges is about. And then this passage here is kind of like the practice hand, the, the practice round. So my family, we like to play this game called Nerds. I don't know if you've ever played it. It's a very fast-paced card game. But for somebody that's never played solitaire, has never played nerds, it's confusing to explain. So you explain it to them, their eyes glaze over, and then you say, hey, let's do a practice hand. And then as you're going along, you're explaining the game as they play. That's really what, the, what this section that I just read is, it's a practice hand. Now, it happened, it's a true account. I'm not saying that the writer made this up to be like, okay, we're gonna have a practice hand. But um, it's a true account of what happened, and it's placed in a way to explain this prologue of chapters one and two. So chapter one is from Israel's perspective, and then chapter two is from God's perspective, and then we pick up in chapter three. So Judges is written in a pattern of Israel sins, they forget the Lord, then usually there's a, a, some army or some nation that, that captures them, then Israel doesn't like that, so they cry out to God, and God, because he's merciful and gracious, sends a deliverer, and Israel has rest. Then that's the pattern. But as the pattern goes on in the book of Judges, the um, sin becomes deeper and deeper, more entrenched, and the deliverers are, are more, their character is um, worse and worse and worse. And we see in this passage here, if you read carefully, or as we go through it, you'll see, that God is really the hero of this story. I don't know about you, but when I read Judges, typically it's like, oh, Gideon, that guy's amazing, or Samson, that guy's so strong. But in all these passages, and all these deliverers, all these judges, it's really God who, who is the one who is delivering his people. He's using people, but God is the hero of the story. But I think as we look at this passage this morning, there's a question that we have to answer, and the question is, why does God even respond to their cry? Right? I mean, think about it. He rescues Israel from Egypt. They were slaves, having to work. They were oppressed for 400 years plus. So he delivers them miraculously, provides for them in the wilderness, food, water, the soles of their feet, or shoes didn't wear out. And yet, what does Israel do? They turn from the Lord, right? That's what this passage is saying. So why does God respond to their cry? I think it's just a beautiful picture of God's grace, God's mercy, God's love for his people. And we see that Israel, with their hearts, there are people that are prone to wander, as James was talking about earlier in our worship, that, that we need Sunday morning because our hearts are prone to wander. And this time together, 
recalibrates us, recalibrates our hearts, reminds us of God's goodness and his mercy. So what happened with Israel? Let's look at verse 7. They were committing sin, and we see that here, that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. So the Bible's not mincing words here. It's not, oh, they made a mistake, oops. They did evil, wickedness in the sight of the Lord. And we see two types of sin here. There's the sin of omission, which is not doing what you're supposed to do, and the sin of commission, committing something egregious. Now, as I said earlier, we just moved into our house yesterday. Before that, I spent the last two weeks painting our house. And I committed a few omissions. So, if you look in the corner there, that wall, at the bottom, where we're painting along baseboards, it's really hard to get in the corner with paint. It's really, really hard. And I was using a brush. It was too lazy to get a, a smaller brush, the brush I needed to get in that corner. So I decided I'll just like dab a bunch of paint in there and, and wedge it in there. I got tape. I got painter's tape. It'll take care of itself. So I think that works. And then after the paint dries, I pulled the tape, and it didn't work. It bled all the way through. That was omission. Now, it wasn't like, I didn't take paint and just stick it in there and do it like that. I, I, tried, to do, I tried to take care of it, but I omitted because I didn't get the right tool, right? I wasn't maliciously just throwing paint everywhere, but that was the sin of omission. I didn't get the right tool. I didn't do what I should have done. There's also a sin of commission. That's committing a sin. That's like doing something deliberately evil. So you see the two types, right? Omission, not doing what you should do, not doing the good that you should do. Commission, doing something just outright wrong, wicked. We see two types here with Israel. Sin of omission. They forgot the Lord their God. Now, the word for forget here, it's not like, oops, I forgot my mother-in-law's birthday. Okay, I did do that, and I got in big trouble for it. But it's not like a slip of the mind. This is something more egregious. It's, it's really you're forsaking the Lord. You are deliberately forsaking the Lord. So that's omission. So they're, they're not worshiping. They're not doing the good that they should be doing. They are not worshiping. Because of that, they then begin to commit the sin of commission. Not only are they not worshiping the Lord... They're worshiping other gods. So, how does that happen when they stop worshiping God? What does that look like today? Well, a few things we can point to. Maybe it's when you decide to stop going to, to worship on Sunday. You decide, ah, I'm going to sleep in today. We don't have the 1045 service anymore for a few months, so I'm just going to sleep in, catch up on my rest. Make it Sunday, fun day. I'm going to go out on the boat, go do something fun, go play golf. Maybe they stop participating in fellowship, in community. Stop reading Bible. Stop reading your Bible. Maybe the, the prayer life begins to wane. So those, those are modern-day omissions. You're, you're just, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go on cruise control. 
So here's what they did, Israel. They replaced the true God with a false God. Because by nature, we are all worshipers. We all worship something. We all ascribe worth to something, whatever that may be. So they're beginning to do this with these false gods, the Baals and the Ashereth. Now, Ashereth was a Canaanite fertility goddess and possibly the mother of a pantheon of gods. And Baal was a, the bringer of rain, the storm god. Okay? So they're an agrarian society, right? They live and die by the rain and the weather to produce crops, to produce food. So imagine that Baal probably gets a lot of worship, especially when things are going poorly. And they have a pantheon of gods, and the gods re require egregious things, like sacrificing your children to this god. They have evidence that that, that happened with the Canaanites and with Baal in particular. So this is a, a messed up religion, a messed up imitation, a cheap practice compared to the worshiping of the one true God of the Bible. So this is what Israel has decided to do. This is where they have gone. This is where they have turned. I think for, at least for me, when I'm reading this, it's easy to kind of armchair quarterback this and be like, how could you guys do this? I mean, come on, people. Wake up. How could you turn your back on the God who delivered you, the God who gave you this land, the God who encouraged you to um, provide land for you, provided food for you, provided... Uh, cities that you didn't build, that's what the scripture says about this promised land. How could you do this? How could you turn your back? But I think if we, if we really search our hearts this morning, we could probably say that this is true of us in some way, or at least can be. There's that, that temptation or risk that this can be true of us. One pastor says this about um, us in this passage. Though they knew who God was and what he wanted, those things were not real to them. This is a spiritual problem today, too. What we know with our heads is not real to our hearts and our whole beings. So if you were to ask an Israelite in this day, like, hey, who's your God? They would probably say it's Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, right? The, the covenant God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They wouldn't say Trinity, but to us we'd say, yeah, it's, it's Jesus. It's the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit. We know that, but the question is, does our heart point to that? Do our desires bear that out? That's the question we have to ask ourselves today. So what false gods do we pursue? What are we ascribing worth to over and above the Lord. Our temptation, at least for my family, uh, I have three boys, a 14-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 3-year-old, is to make their interests, their activities, the sports that they want to play, the things they want to do at school, any extracurricular enrichment like music or whatnot, for that to become the centerpiece of our lives and that our life revolves around our kids and what they want. That's our temptation. Perhaps it's that for some of you. Others, maybe it's our work schedule, wanting to, to move up the ranks in the company that we're working for, wanting to earn extra income for good reasons, to want to be a better provider for your families. Maybe that's a temptation. 
Maybe it's just leisure, entertainment, hobbies. Perhaps it's focusing on ourselves, having the, the right diet, the best form of exercise so that we can be the best you you can. Now, none of these things in and of themselves are bad or wrong. It's when they supplant God and become the ultimate thing, our ultimate driving force. That's when they become idolatry. It's taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. So diet and exercise are good. Work is good. Family is good. Leisure is good. But when they become the, the driving force of our lives and everything we do is aiming for those things, that's when it becomes a problem. And I think for us, it's important to, to have these little reminders in our lives to point us back to the Lord. So Sunday morning is a great reminder. We just spent some time confessing our sins, reminding us of God's grace and our need for mercy, our need for cleansing, our need for forgiveness of our sins. The Lord's Supper is a wonderful reminder of, of God's provision in Jesus Christ to meet, meet our needs, to feed us, to nourish us spiritually. Connecting with your brothers and sisters of Christ is a great reminder of our sonship with the Lord and our fellowship, our family, church family, as we gather together. These are all great reminders. Prayer is a wonderful reminder that we have access to the throne of grace as we have Jesus Christ as a high priest so that our prayers are really heard. These are great reminders. And we need to, to utilize the reminders that God has placed in our lives. I don't know about you, but I need reminders in my life. So for example, I said I forgot my, mother, my mother-in-law's birthday. I also forget where my keys are placed a lot of times. And it costs me a lot of times. So I don't know if you've, you've heard of this. They should start advertising or paying me for, for promoting them. But there's these uh, little square things called tiles. Anyone know, everyone know what a tile is? Stick them on your keychains. You can put them in your wallet. They have little car- credit card sized ones. And then there's an app on your phone. So if you don't know where your keys are, hopefully you know where your phone is. Um, you go on your phone, you hit the tile, and then it, it rings. So you can find where your keys are. That's a great reminder. It's a great way for me to remember, okay, my keys are over there. Good. We need that in our spiritual lives, too. We need these reminders. So that's why it's important to, to be in church, to, to be reminded of the gospel, to be in your word in the Word of God, so that you are reminded of the Gospel. Be in fellowship. So I encourage you to not only attend Sunday morning, but to have a, a time where you are personally engaging with the Lord through prayer and through Scripture reading. And if you have children in the home, do that with them as well. Maybe around the dinner table or at the breakfast table or in the evening, engage with them about who the Lord is, read scripture with them, pray with them, so that they have those reminders and they have those habits instilled in their lives. So we need to be reminded. We also need to remember that we can repent and call to the Lord if we have gone wayward with something. If we made something ultimate, we can repent. And then we are called to, to continue to, to be his witnesses and do the work. Now, So they committed sin, and then we see in verse 
<clears throat> eight, there's a consequence to sin. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. I don't know how much you guys spend in the Old Testament, but when you come to difficult names like Cushan Rishathaim, just say it like you know it, and everybody in the room will think, hey, that person knows how to read their Old Testament really well. Or you can listen to an audio Bible and just mimic what they say. That works too. But we have the, this sin that kindles God's anger. And that's a, such a powerful word picture. Just think of, of kindling. It's like hot. There's something that is going to happen. God's anger isn't something to be trifled with. It's serious to have God's anger kindled against them. But I think his anger is actually a demonstration of his love. And I don't know, when I first thought about that or read it in some commentary as I was studying this passage, I didn't know what to do with that. I don't really know if I had a category for, for that yet. Does that make sense to you? Like, how does anger show love? Anger seems like they're angry and they're, they're mad at me and they don't like me. But I think his anger shows his love in that what if God just kind of put his hands up in the air and like, okay, well, you want to worship those gods? Go ahead. I'm going to go pursue another people and, and do my thing through them. What would happen then? Israel would stay in their sin. They would get more and more entrenched in it. Their hearts would continue to harden to where there would be no turning back, right? So God, in his anger, allows this ruler to overcome them in order to get their attention. So God, in his anger, actually did something very loving. He did something dramatic to arouse their attention. Now, my kids don't like it when I raise my voice. I don't like to raise my voice at them. But it's something dramatic, so I get their attention, right? So if my three-year-old decides to run in the street, I'm not going to be like, hey, Ezra, can you not do that, please? Like, can we have a conversation about this? Let's sit down and discuss. I go, Ezra, no! Okay, and he's like, whoa, what? He might even start crying because he's startled. And I do it in an angry voice just to stop him in his tracks. And it's worked so far. He's still here. It's worked so far, but I'm really showing my, my love for him because I don't want him to run in the street. God's doing that here. And here we really begin to see God is at work. Listen to, to what it says. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, who's the he? It's God, right? He sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. So God is the one who is doing this. And this ruler is, is not, he's not a good guy. His name actually means double evil. And Mesopotamia means two rivers. So it's double evil, probably a nickname, from two rivers, 
So from the Tigris and Euphrates. So, so modern day Iraq is where this ruler lived and then he extended all the way down to Israel, his reign. So a very powerful ruler took credit. I think we see that sin always has a consequence. It may not manifest itself right away, but sin has a consequence. My consequence for omitting getting the right brush is I now have paint stains on my, um, on my baseboards and I have to go back and, and touch it up. That's my consequence for my sin of omission, not getting the right brush. But there's, there's bigger sins in life and there's bigger consequences in life. And maybe you've been sinning and you know it, but you're kind of like, I don't have any consequences yet. Like, I'm getting away with it. Maybe it's not that bad. I like it. Uh, I'm going to keep doing it. Sin always has a consequence. God doesn't leave sin unpunished. So I encourage anyone that's just, even now, in the quietness of your heart, the Holy Spirit's beginning to convict you of something, to take a moment even now to repent to the Lord Maybe you didn't do it at the confession time. Even now as I'm preaching, you can go before the Lord and say, Lord, please forgive me for dot, dot, dot. Please forgive me for this. Please forgive me for pursuing other things other than you. So there's a consequence of sin, but there's also a covering of God's grace. So we see as the story continues, verse 9, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. So eight years is enough for Israel. It's better than 400 years, but they cry out. They ask for help. But this cry is not a cry of repentance. The language doesn't um, communicate that. It's more of a cry of, this stinks. I don't want this anymore. Which is different than, Lord, please forgive me. Lord, we have sinned against you. Please show us grace, show us mercy. It's like, they're crying, ugh, when will this end? So the Lord ends it for him. He raises up a deliverer. Raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. But I want to go back to repentance for a minute. I think the fact that this isn't a response to repentance is actually the reason why we could call this an act of God's grace. So God isn't responding to Israel saying they repented and then he's like, okay, now I'll rescue you because you have repented. Because grace doesn't work that way, right? Grace is a free gift. It's something that we don't deserve. If Israel repented, they could say, hey, we deserve this. We called out to God and and he forgave us by delivering us. No, God acts first in this. Israel's frustrated, yes, but they are not saying, Lord, please restore our relationship right now. They're just saying, end the pain. End the oppression. End the suffering. Nothing about sin. Nothing about ways that we have wronged the Lord. But God, in his grace, does something anyway. Just as Israel's lack of repentance doesn't earn God's response, our repentance, when we come to Christ, doesn't earn God's grace. God's grace precedes, precedes repentance. God has called us, delivered us, regenerated us by his spirit, 
And then we respond to God's grace with faith and repentance. Repentance is a fruit of God's grace. So God is having compassion on their situation, and then we see he begins to act mightily. The Lord raises up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. So it's the Lord doing that. The deliverer, the deliverer is Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He judged Israel. See the Lord there. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So you see how God's the hero of this story? It's not Othniel was such a mighty warrior. He was such a righteous guy. He did everything right. No, it's the Lord is the one who raised him up. The Lord is the one who gave this ruler into his hand. The Lord is the one who is doing all the action here. It's his grace on display. And God gives him rest. Rest from oppression. Rest from having somebody, being under somebody else's thumb for 40 years. And for an upstart nation, this is huge. For Israel, this is a massive gift. It's beautiful. But there's kind of a sad note at the end. This isn't an eternal rest, right? It's limited. It's 40 years. And then this wonderful deliverer that God had raised up, who the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, died. That's the pattern of Judges. The peace that Israel receives each and every time a judge is raised up doesn't last. Even the best judges, the most righteous people who are fair and just and mighty can't bring true deliverance. It's limited. But God continues to respond because He is gracious. And this passage really points to our true need of rest, our ultimate need of rest, that, that we need a deliverer that maybe dies but raises again, that defeats death, that provides an eternal rest that no normal deliverer can. And we see that in Jesus, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. Rest from the consequences of your sin, which is forgiveness. Rest from the consequence of death. I will give you eternal life. Rest from the fall. That is what Jesus offers you. He offers his rest. Some of you may have never entered that rest. Someone here today may have been coming to church and... You're checking things out. You're not really sure what to make of Jesus. But he's offering this morning his rest. Forgiveness of sins. A restoration and relationship with God Almighty, your creator. To be adopted into a family of brothers and sisters. If you repent and believe in him. For others, you've experienced deliverance. You have come to know the Lord, you love Jesus, you're following him, you're doing your best, this is a reminder for you 
Not to forget him. Not to forsake him. Not to go on to other things, but to to allow the reminders to bring God back to the forefront of your mind. To redirect your heart back to him. I think for those that have been following for Jesus for a while, I think the question that you have to answer is, is there anything in your life that may be leading you down the path to forsaking God? Is there anything leading you down that path to forsaking God? You may say, of course not. I'm a godly person. I check all the boxes. I wake up at 5 a.m. and spend an hour in prayer and then an hour in devotions. Or maybe five minutes. Or, and I don't miss a single day. But take a moment and just think about it. Just for a second. What are you neglecting? What, what discipline have you neglected in the Christian life? What in your life has become more important than pursuing Christ? It's times like this in, in worship, as we gather together on Sunday morning, where God reminds us of his goodness, his faithfulness, his mercy, his love for sinners like us. And my encouragement for you is to remember that, to not forget, to remember that. Use the time here that we have together on Sunday mornings to to be rejuvenated spiritually, to be reminded of who God is, to be recalibrated back to true north where Jesus is. But also throughout the week, in, in time with your family and on your own, spend that time with the Lord so that you don't forget, so that you don't forsake and neglect God's grace. Because God is the hero of this story, and his grace comes to us in the midst of our waywardness.